Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Uh, let me share some of these this morning also. Um, pray for uh, Brandon Wagner as well, because he woke up, he was supposed to be here playing guitar for us, but he uh, woke up not feeling good. Chuck was already, uh, he had like a late night gig somewhere, and um, uh, well, just let me share this with you, an aside, because uh, I get stressed out when musicians call off and we're struggling. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And especially since, since Christmas, there's been more in my mind now, and as I was stressing about it this morning, uh, you guys remember the Grinch, how the Grinch stole Christmas? And you remember once he took all the stuff from Whoville, that all the, are they called Whovillians? What are they called? The Who's. All the Who's, um, not of the doctor type, but all the Who's, they were standing around anyway, just singing with no music, no instruments, no whatever, just going for it. And I get convicted every now and then because I want, I want all the music, all the strings, all the whatever. Uh, don't judge me. It's just because our band sounds pretty good. So I like it when they're all here and we can just go full in. So, uh, yeah, but uh, keep Brandon in prayer because uh, he woke up not feeling good. But uh, as we're continuing through our, our walk through the Gospel of John, um, uh, how many people are reading through the Gospel of John as we're doing this? Anyone? Uh, if you haven't started, I, say, I would recommend doing it because actually, two things. One, it's going to allow you to say, yeah, this makes sense. Two, it's going to allow you to say, no, Floyd, that's not what the Bible says. So if, I, if I'm saying something that's not in the Bible, call me on it. Make sure that I'm, I'm staying true to what God's word says. If you're like, hey, Floyd, and I, I, every now and then someone will say, hey, you said this, but that's not quite right, and I'll have to correct myself because I am not the, the, the know-all and be-all of God's word. We are the know-all and be-all of God's word, but only if we're reading God's word. So as we're continuing through um, the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to see where Jesus kind of interacts with three, three kind of really intense human culture type events. The first one uh, is he interacts in one of the most basic relationship practices, the wedding of Cana. Uh, and weddings, it doesn't matter where you go in every culture, whether they call it a wedding or a tribal ceremony, whatever they call it, there's some type of acknowledgement of people coming together in an act of love. That's a human thing. And I think it's great. John is the only one that records this. And one of the you know, things uh, that theologians tell us is that he went back and he, he knew the other gospels. He had lived them, but he knew what Matthew wrote and Mark wrote and Luke wrote. And then he said, hey, but you're leaving out some really good stuff. And I think this is great because he captures this basic, and there's a lot of people that said, you know, God is so irrelevant. God doesn't know about what's going on in humanity's life. God shows up at a wedding because he does know what's going on with humanity. He knows what's important to us. So he shows up. And then the next thing uh, that we're going to look at is the religious practices where God doesn't always agree with the things that go on in the church where he comes in and he just overturns all the tables. And then uh, the last one is going to be one of the, one of the common things, and, and, and it really more applies to Christians, is where that Christian struggle where we, you know, keep trying to do all these things and we're trying to figure out what God wants. And then uh, God has this great conversation um, and where he just, you know, he just lays it out. And it may not make sense because it's spiritual, but he just lays out, you know, here's what it means if you want to access the kingdom of God. Here's what it means 
uh, to know God. Now, the first one, a little controversial because in the Bible, Jesus turns water into wine. And there's this Christian debate about whether or not Christians should drink and whether water or wine. I'm not encouraging drinking. But what I am saying is this particular passage at the wedding of Cana has nothing to do with the religious debate about alcohol. That's not what John is trying to highlight. What John is trying to highlight is the fact that Jesus has authority over nature. He turns water into wine. And the church shouldn't be arguing about, was Jesus drinking wine? Was it grape juice? Was it Welch's? Was it wine? What they should be celebrating is, we have a God that shows us his authority over nature, over natural things. Uh, so here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to turn to the uh, book of John, John chapter 2, we're going to start in. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere underneath your chair to the left, to the right of you, uh, somewhere around you. Uh, and we're going to be reading, uh, and if you're not sure where, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're going to be reading through really quickly through a lot of scripture. Uh, but this is, this is again, these are, these are important interactions that Jesus has with real people. So they're worth looking at. And in John chapter 2, this is what it says. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, what you need to know is that their weddings were not like our weddings. Their weddings were for several days, you know, uh, and cost a lot less than ours anyway. But their weddings, everyone in the town was invited. Like uh, uh, when Gary's daughters got married, it was, you know, friends and family. Uh, when Augie Jr. got married, it was friends and family. Uh, when they got married, it was friends, families, uh, friends of friends, like on Facebook, friends of friends, friends of friends, cousins, business owners, politicians, everyone in the town showed up for the wedding. It was like the whole town shut down, just like the inauguration. If you guys are watching it, every, everything shut down. Everyone was involved. That's what their weddings were like. The whole town shut down, and everyone showed up. So Jesus and his disciples showed up. They ran out of wine in verse 4. Dear woman, why have you involved me, Jesus? Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Now his time to be revealed publicly had not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to her servants, do whatever he tells you because her faith was in God's interest in human issues. Now, this was a small issue. Like, we're not going to, like, you know, stop and look for a news feed that says, you know, so-and-so's wedding, they ran out of wine, they ran out of alcohol. But here, there was the issue of, you know, it was a big deal because everyone was there. You would lose face. But it wasn't big enough that we would think anything of it. But it was big enough that Jesus thought something of it. So his mother said to her servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. This would have been the wedding planner. This would have been the person who organized everything, made sure everything flowed, uh, made sure the seating was right, made sure Cousin Bertha doesn't sit next to Uncle Jack because they don't like each other or whatever it was. This would have been that person. They did so, in verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, 
though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. Again, this is, this is, no one else knows what's going on. He calls him aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So again, you can't make the case that this is out, that this is like, you know, he brings out the Welch's grape juice first and then later brings out the, what's the, the value brand? You know what I mean? That, that like, if you were like me when, you know, back when I was like loving Pepsi, you know, it's like, yay, great, Pepsi. But then when mom goes and she gets the value brand soda, you don't want people to know that your mom brought you the value brand. But once you pour it into the glass, what does it look like next to a can of Pepsi? Pepsi. So he's not talking about he brought out the, the Welch's grape juice first and then later the value grape juice. He says that you brought out, once they've had too much to drink, you bring out the good wine. So most people would start, well, he says they bring out, everyone brings out the choice wine first, the $40, and then you progress to the $30, then you progress to the $20, and then when it's around, you know, 10 o'clock at night, and the DJ's still going, or people are drunk, that's when you bring out the Mad Dog 2020, and, well, maybe not that cheap of a stuff, but you get to the cheaper stuff. But what he says is, after the guests have had too much to drink, that's when you would switch. But he said, You've bring out, you brought out the best now. And it's not after the guests have had too much grape juice. It's after the guests have had too much alcohol. He's talking about alcohol. Now, the Bible doesn't endorse drinking. The Bible definitely says, Thou shalt not be drunk. But this is not what the church should be dwelling on in this particular passage. What they should be acknowledging is Jesus turned water into wine. In verse 11, it says this, The first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So earlier it said, Jesus said, hey, it's not yet my time. I don't, I don't want to do anything. He told his mother it's not yet my time. And it wasn't his time to be revealed publicly, but it was time for him to be revealed to his disciples. And as a result, they put their faith and their trust in him. They believed in him because they believed in him because he demonstrated his authority over nature. He showed that, hey, now, it, it, it'd be different if, 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 if all he did was, like, go somewhere behind a, a, a thing and just pulled out some extra things of wine because people say, oh, maybe these were already there. But he didn't. What he did is he took water, not to go into, a, like, a science class, which is nothing more than two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Now, he took a lot of it, granted, but he turned it into wine which contains acids, carbs, nitrates and remnants of fruit. Wine is like fermented fruit. That's a powerful thing. Like if, 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 if someone could do, if that's all, if someone could do that today and that's all they did, like they would make more money than everyone on the planet combined. If you could turn water into wine. And it's, again, it's not about Oh, you shouldn't drink alcohol, whether or not you should be drinking alcohol. It's about we have a God that stepped into a human issue that is not that big of a deal and showed his authority and his humanity and his love for humans. All right? Now, 
uh, jump over to uh, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 12. It says, after this event, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there he stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, now when reading through the Gospel of John, uh, you may not know this, but John kind of makes a timeline that you can follow of three distinct Passovers. Uh, this is the first Passover. Later on, he talks about the second, and the one where he talks about the death, burial, and resurrection is centered around the third Passover. So when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? What authority do you have to say what goes on in the temple? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Now, this wasn't the temple that Solomon uh, had done uh, hundreds of years ago. This was a temple that King Herod had built. Herod was of Jewish descent, but he decided, I'm going to be, you know, side with the Romans, be a politician, and enforce their rule on the Jews. So the Jews hated him. In order to ingratiate himself with the Jews, he had another temple built. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he, raised, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So they had already trusted in him, but then because of this, they began to trust the scripture. Now, uh, a lot of people don't see, like, I don't see the big deal about, you know, if people are set up, and you have to put it in our mindset today, if people are set up, and, in, and has anyone been to like a mega church before? Like the ones with the cafeterias in them and, the, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, it, they, have, they, they have bookstores in them, uh, the one Christian I used to attend to, Christian Fellowship Church in Virginia, they have a bookstore in them, they have a cafeteria, they have uh, not a Starbucks, but some other coffee brand that no one really knows because Starbucks is the dominating coffee brand, uh, and a bunch of other things that they sell. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that they were selling things at an increased markup, literally robbing the people, and the money wasn't going back into the church. The money was going into their pockets. So if you could imagine, if we put an ATM back there, I know we just talked about money and tithing and giving, but if we put an ATM so that people that don't have money uh, walk in without cash and just take out money to give their tithe, but when you go to the ATM, most of your banks are going to charge you 2 or $3 if it's not their bank. The ATM is going to charge you 2 or $3. What they were doing is saying, we're not going to charge you 2 or $3. We're going to charge you 45% of whatever you take out or 50% of whatever you take out. And that 50% wasn't going into the church. It was going into their pockets. They were robbing the people and calling it a religious practice because they were selling doves and cattle. Uh, they were selling those things so that people who showed up and wanted to offer a sacrifice could do so. But instead of me coming all the way from West Mifflin with my sheep, I can come here and buy a sheep. Instead of me calling all the way from you know, Elizabeth with my sheep, I can just come here and they're right in the foyer but you're going to have to pay a premium price, a 50% markup, and that goes in my pocket. 
And Jesus said, get this junk out of here. This is not, the church isn't designed to be a marketplace. Now, there are lots of programs that, that, and, and ministries that lots of churches run, but uh, here's the thing. Not every religious practice is a God-honoring practice. Not everything that every single church does is a God-honoring practice. And if I'm being 100% honest, and don't nod your heads, yes, board, but not everything that I have said, hey, let's do this, has been something that has been probably in our best interest. And thank God we do have some board members that said, no, that's not going to happen. Although the helicopter thing is still on the board whenever we get enough money for that, that's still going to happen. Nothing wrong with that. But not everything that churches put together and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, is a God-honoring thing. Now, we do have a, a, a kind of like a rule. Whenever we start trying to say, hey, let's do this or let's do that, let's start some kind of program, let's do some kind of ministry or whatever, uh, first and foremost, uh, is it something that's going to unite the community? If we do this thing, whatever it is, is it something that's going to bring the community together? Even if we're not preaching, even if no one opens a Bible, is it something that's going to bring the community together? Then if we have the finances and the human resources, sure, why not? Let's consider doing it. Is it something that's going to help the community? The, the, the shoe thing, the coat thing, uh, that's not raising any money. It's not bringing a community together. But is it going to help people in a community? Sure. Then let's consider it. If we have the time, the effort, and the resource to do it, let's make it happen. And then always, is it one that's going to allow us to share the gospel in the community? And if you've ever wondered why are we always getting involved in all of these outside things, the praise in the park, uh, uh, the choir festival, all these other things, because if it's something that's going to give us an opportunity to speak God's truth in front of people, I am always going to say yes. Now, uh, let me say this, because I've had conversations, again, family of pastors, where some people are like, well, if there's a, a you know, and I won't name any denominations because I don't want to offend anybody, but if denomination A is there or denomination B is there or supposed to be a denomination but some people call it a cult C is there, we shouldn't attend. I can respect that. For me, this is just me. I'm not saying for crossroads. This is just me. If that denomination is there or that denomination is there, especially if it's a cult and that really denomination is there, if their people are going to be there and I get to stand up in front of them and share the gospel, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to stand up in front of them and share the gospel. Because um, they, if, if they truly are a cult or not a God-honoring denomination, they may not hear it anywhere else. So I am always going to move towards, yeah, let's do it. Now, if the whole event is not God-honoring, if it's something, you know, that, that is just wrong, then yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go that route. But this, this is kind of like the guidelines that we kind of follow when we're trying to figure out what event should we do. Best in a burger, hey, it brings people together. And, and, and just so you know, even though most of the time it's usually just us there, all of these events that we do, I am constantly always asking other congregations Come be a part. Come be involved. Come do, us, do this thing with us so that the community can see the churches coming together. It's the, and, and most of those things, they end up costing us money. Not a lot, but they end up costing us money. We don't charge people to do them. We just want to get out there and bring, especially if it's an opportunity to bring the churches together. All right, so in the next portion of Scripture, let me move on. Next portion of Scripture, um, Jesus addresses the problems kind of like with religious folks especially ones who have set expectations about what things should be in the church, how the church should work, what programs, all this kind of thing. Uh, Jesus has a down-to-earth 
conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Uh, So if you're not there already, jump to chapter 3. And this is what it says in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. Pharisees were a ruling religious council. If you could imagine if the Jefferson Hills City Council uh, were of a religious mindset or of a certain denomination, that's what this was. Uh, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. And he consistently says we, uh, and it's likely because he was not the only person in the ruling council. And I think uh, one of the gospels, I forget which one, which verse says it elsewhere, that there were Pharisees that trusted and believed in God, but they did so secretly because they were in fear of what the, the Jewish council might do to them. He said, we know that you are teachers come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, this gets a little bit in detail, but I'm going to explain what this means in a minute. And it may sound confusing, but it's not, because Jesus is talking about spiritual. I mean, God is a spirit. So he's talking about a spiritual thing, versus what we like to do, a man-made, here's the set of things that you must do to get to God. Verse 4, Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And this is what he's thinking. It's not making sense because you're talking about being born again. How can someone be born a second time? And Jesus answered it. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God Unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, this may sound confusing, but basically what he's saying is, hey, just like you were born the first time, and we know he's talking about birth because they keep using this birth terminology, just like you were born when you were born, uh, a woman's water is broke, uh, so we're born through water. I know it doesn't make sense why he uses that analogy, but that's the one he's using. And then he talks about uh, a second birth is being born spiritually. Um, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked, and this is Jesus' answer, which I love. You are Israel's teacher. In other words, you're the religious elite. You're supposed to be the people who know all what's going on religiously and teaching others, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still your people do not accept our testimony that we, and that plural, is not talking about the disciples. Because the disciples still didn't understand. They weren't testifying to anything yet. He's talking about a spiritual trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are speaking what they know. They're testifying to what they know, and people wouldn't accept it. And he said, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And I'll touch on that in a minute. But he's talking about the fact that there needs to be a spiritual birth, a spiritual, when a person is born and they come into this world, that's when they begin from this plane of existence. Now they've existed in the womb, but now they enter into a whole other world. Before, their life, 
their breathing, their living, their eating, all occurred, if you allow me to go with this analogy, in the world of that mother's womb. That's where all of that took place. That was their whole existence. But then they gave birth, and they came into this world. They had to learn everything all over again and, and acclimate themselves to this world. The same is true spiritually. Right? Our realm of understanding and thinking is everything that I can see, touch, feel, eat, and taste. But to, in order to see, know, and access God, I have to have a spiritual birth. I have to access and acknowledge and understand spiritual things, and I have to learn how they are. I can't stay acknowledging that this world is the only thing that exists and expect to know a God who exists outside of this world. Does that make sense? In order for me to know and access that God, I can't do it if all I'm going to do is keep my mind close to the fact that this is it. I've got to trust and believe that there is a God who exists, who is bigger than this world and who created this world. And the Bible tells us that God is a spiritual being. Once I access that spiritual being by putting my faith and trust in Jesus, then I begin to learn about spiritual things. And it may not sound like it, but Jesus is telling a religious teacher This is like Christianity 101. Jesus is saying, how can I begin to tell you about all the other things that your mind can't even grasp if you can't get the basics of understanding that God is a spirit, and in order to access him, you have to access spiritual things. Now, he goes on and said, for God so loved the world, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now, here's, this is where a lot of people just dig down on the Bible and they say that the Bible contradicts itself because we're told that, no, Jesus did come to condemn the world. No, here's the thing. We're already condemned when you are born, you are already condemned. And people say, well, what kind of harsh God is that that he would condemn us? He didn't condemn us. That is just the state of what we're born into. If you look and think about, pick you know, a point on a map where there's a third world country with no water, no food, and under drought, when a child is born there, like it or not, they're born into a situation where the state of their reality is they're probably going to starve They may not live to see adulthood, and if they do, they're going to have lack of water, they're going to have diseases, they're plagued with that. That's just their reality. They are born into that. They are condemned to that already. No one has to do anything. All they have to do is be born. When we are born, no one has to do anything. We are already born condemned to hell. That's the destination of every single person on the planet from birth. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save us from that condemnation. And he says, all you have to do, and I know it's a spiritual mindset, is trust and believe in him. And that's where a lot of religious people struggle because we don't get that. We don't understand that. We don't fully grasp that there's a spiritual thing, and we keep looking for it. This is why there's so many different religions with all these things that you have to do to reach God, because we keep trying to say there must be something that we as humans can do to reach God. Now, in the rest of this chapter, uh, John um, talks about humbling himself, not John 
the apostle, but John the Baptist. He talks about humbling himself and acknowledging that, you know, God is superior to him. Let me just highlight one of the verses uh, from chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 31. He says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. This is also, if you, uh, we did a while back a walking through the book of Hebrews, and the author of the book of Hebrews is trying to highlight is that Jesus is above anything and everything in the universe. And John is acknowledging that, hey, Jesus is way better than I am. He's more superior to me. I'm just the messenger boy. Jesus is the one who we should be worshiping and seeking after. And it, it kind of boggles my mind how uh, we, who are flawed human beings, we all make mistakes. We all have issues. We all mess up. We all say things we don't mean. We all have just things inside of us that are, are, are not the greatest, not to say that Every person on the planet is, is like a bad person, but we all have issues. We all make mistakes. We're all flawed. So why would we, who are flawed, mistaken human beings, think that we can come up with a plan that will allow us to connect with God? Because if we're flawed human beings, it's likely our plans might be flawed. So God, who is a perfect being, said, here's a perfect plan for you to connect with me. And this is, this is one of the hardest things that uh, uh, a lot of Christians struggle with. Now, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, if you're a parent, raise your hand. All right. Hold your hand up for a minute. Keep it up. Hold it up. I want you to look at this and don't speak out loud. Just, just think about the answer to this question. All right. What do your children have to do in order to earn your love? All they have to do is just be born. That's it. There is absolutely nothing they can do. Now, don't raise your hand to this. Are they going to disappoint us? Yes. Did I say that too loud? Okay. Are they going to make mistakes? Yes. Are they going to have issues? Yes. Are they going to screw up? Yes. Are there going to be good days where, like, they're all you think about and, and they bring tears to your eyes because you're so filled with appreciation and joy? Yes. Are there going to be days when, you know, you don't have to admit it, but I will admit it, where you are like, I don't even want to claim them as my child? Yes. But is there ever going to be a day where you stop loving them? Not one. And all they had to do was be born. They don't have to come up with a list. Uh, on the days their rooms are clean, I love them. On the days their rooms aren't clean, I love them. On the days when they call me and say, hey, I just got a promotion at work, I love them. And I don't know about you, but on the days where you get a call and say, you need to come pick up your child from the police station, I still love them. And they did nothing, and there's nothing they can do to earn that love. There's going to be days where they answer the phone, and you're like, oh, I'm so great to talk to you. And there's going to be days or weeks where you're trying to get a hold of them, and they won't take your calls. Still love them. There is nothing they can do to change that. Now, uh, one more verse. Uh, in, in John chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, this is what John writes. And, and I said I need to come back to this because this is going to help uh, explain this a little bit more. And, and we read this. And just as Jesus lifted up the serpent in the desert, this is the amplified version, on a pole, so must, so it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. 
in order that everyone who believes in him, who cleaves to him, trusts in him, and relies on him, may not perish, but have eternal life and actually live forever. And this may not make sense, but from, uh, for Nicodemus, uh, Jesus was reaching back into a part of Jewish history. Because when Moses had the people in the desert, you guys remember Ten Commandments, they were in the desert ha- hanging out. There was one time where um, there were snakes and serpents that came into the camp. And I don't mean a few like, you know, you see a garden snake here, see one a couple of days later, uh, just like as much grass as there is outside, that's how many poisonous serpents were within this camp that was of a few, possibly a million, million and a half people in the desert. And these poisonous snakes began to bite people, and people were getting ill, they were getting sick, and people were dying. And so what God told Moses is, hey, you need to take this, make this bronze serpent, huge bronze serpent, put it up on a, 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 on a stick, on a pole, and hold it up and walk through the camp. And everyone who looks at that bronze serpent, they're going to be healed. Makes absolutely, positively no sense. But here's the thing. God could have said, you know, go mix a little, you know, run a 7-Eleven, get some of this, some of that, give it to the people, and they'll be healed. But then they wouldn't know it was God. It makes no sense that if you've been bitten by a a poison's running through your body, you're either throwing up or cramping or whatever, that if you look at this snake, this serpent on a bronze pole, that all of a sudden you're healed. All the symptoms go away. You're restored. It is impossible. It makes no sense. The only way it makes sense is if God did it, which is why Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, he was saying, this is the same thing. It makes no sense that you put your faith and trust on me dying on a cross, but then you get to live forever. The only way it makes sense is if a supernatural spiritual God did it. In the same way that they looked up at their bronze serpent and all of a sudden people were healed, made no sense, People that either, talking to Nicodemus, you look forward to my death, burial, and resurrection, and you'll have that eternal life. For us, we look back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we have that eternal life. It makes absolutely, positively no sense. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't work. There's no scientific explanation for it except that God did it. And this is... This is This is one of the reasons people struggle because all of our human efforts, when we try to reach God in our own strength, we do one of two things. We either please God, yeah, we put our faith, we put our trust in him, just like the the attendants who were were going to fill water. Now, think about this. At the wedding at Canaan, they're in the desert, so water is precious. So when you're asking me to, you know, fill six uh, 20 to 30 gallon tanks full of water, there better be a good explanation for this, but they did it. They trusted. And that pleased God, and God used that. But what most people do is they reject God by ignoring him. Because to us, this doesn't make no sense. There's actually absolutely no explanation for why that works. And this is one of the reasons why religious folks, you know, even, even, even God-honoring Christians, why we have so much trouble connecting to God is because we keep looking for, uh, you know, what's that thing that I have to do 
that's either going to connect me to God or either going to put me back in this, this right standing with God? What's this human thing that I have to do uh, that's going to make me in right relationship with God again? When I mess up with my wife, I have to go apologize. I have to go, you know, make sure I can look her in the eye, make sure she understands my fault. I am truly sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to snap at you. I didn't mean to, you know, spend that much money on a drone or whatever it is I did that, that makes her upset. I have to go apologize, and then I can connect and say, okay, we're good. But what we don't understand is there isn't that with God. But we keep looking for what's that thing that I have to do? What's that thing that I have to connect with? And I don't know about you, but I've been in that position where, yeah, you know, I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to be a pastor. But I've screwed up. I've messed up. I've made mistakes. There are times where I just didn't want to do what God wanted me to do. And I've been there where I was like, okay, what's that thing that I have to do to reconnect with God? And what God says is, hey, it's already been done on the cross. All you have to do is, Floyd, just put your faith and trust in that, that you are forgiven, that God loves you, and that you've just been born. You're here. I'm never going to stop loving you. Anything that you can do that will reconnect has already been done on the cross. So as the band comes up, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. God, we just pray that no matter where we are right now, some of us may be in a place where we have this wonderful, loving relationship with you and and where everything's going great and where we're in our Bible every day and we pray every day and uh, we thank you if that's where we are. We give you praise and glory for that. But some of us may be in a place where sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. And we just ask that you would help us to acknowledge that whether we're right, whether we're getting it right, whether we're getting it wrong, whether we're on a, a great path or a bad path, that you have never stopped loving us, that you've already forgiven us. Just allow us to accept that forgiveness. And God, we pray. Some of us may be in a spot where we have just felt like we've, we've been distant from you for a long time. Like we haven't felt your presence in our life. Like we felt like maybe it's us that's turned our back on you or maybe you've turned our back on us. And I pray that you would speak to each and every one of those hearts right now and let them know that you died for them, that you care about them, and that you never stopped loving them. God, speak to each and every one of our hearts right now that we might walk out of here knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love us. God, we pray that as we prepare to worship you in song, that again, you would just put our hearts in the right place. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. And maybe, you know, if you're, you're in that place, maybe this isn't the time for you to stand and sing out. Maybe you want to stay seated and spend some time just doing some business with God. Maybe you, you do want to celebrate because... You know, maybe God did speak to your heart and you just want to rejoice. But whatever you do, just let this be a time just where you and God get to spend some one-on-one time.